episode 418 of the Cyber Law Podcast, the last episode for a month as I get off on August break with luck hiking in the backcountry of Denali Park. So we'll see about that. We do have one bonus episode that'll probably show up in your feed sometime in August, an interview. But otherwise, we'll see you in September after today. The Cyber Law Podcast, as always, is brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, commercial free. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government and the views we're about to express do not reflect the views of our institutions, firms, clients, family, friends, pets, maybe not even ours three weeks from today. With me for the first time on our panel is Christina Iotis, or Tina, a cybersecurity strategist and consultant and somebody I've known for many years. I'm really glad she's joined us. Michael Ellis, formerly of the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, and now a visiting fellow at Heritage. Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, and the chief mad scientist of Scary Technologies, which he's going to talk about today. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we jump in with one that I kind of got wrong. I thought that all of these big fat bills were going to fail to get through the narrow door. But the one that's looking most alive, although it's still got plenty of squeezing to do, is the CHIPS bill. Michael, what's happening with the bill to pay enormous amounts of money to companies that want to start U.S. chip fabs? Well, Schumer put it on a weight loss plan. I guess they called up Jenny Craig, and that is no longer <laughs> quite such a fat man bill. It is now a skinny version. They dropped all of the climate change, re-energy subsidies that had drawn a lot of Republican objections and narrowed it down to a still pretty substantial $52 billion in funding for the semiconductor industry, plus $24 billion in investment tax credits and $200 billion in authorizations, but not funding for federal science research over the next 10 years. So authorizations, so that, I guess, are like fat cells that don't have fat yet, but are hoping to get it soon. <laughs> yeah, you know, co Congress, for some reason, nearly 200 years ago, Congress decided that it wanted to divide its authority, right, and separate out the authorization for spending from the spending itself. So authorizers and appropriators create twice as many jobs for congressional members to sit on committees and be in charge of things. But as you noted, some U.S. companies, in particular Intel, are going to be very happy. By some estimates, Intel might end up with $30 billion of funding from this bill. This is proof that lobbying shakedowns can work. Intel <laughs> you know, had planned to build a factory in Ohio to manufacture advanced semiconductors. They threatened to cancel those plans, pick up the factory and move it to Germany if Congress didn't come through with the money. And it looks like Congress will come through with the money. The Senate successfully passed a test vote last week. They had 64 senators on board, all the Democrats and enough Republicans to get over that 60 vote threshold. So setting it up for a cloture vote probably today and final passage later this week. Pelosi says she's going to pick it up and pass it. It might be one of the few wins that uh, Democratic Congress can deliver to Biden's desk before they leave for the August recess. So, you know, this is good to shore up our manufacturing capability, but we've tried industrial policy actually even in semiconductors before, back in the early 80s, the Semitech Consortium. And it didn't actually work too well to have the federal government pick the winners and losers in this arena. And I fear we may be headed on a similar course. It will help our manufacturing capability, but it will likely be a very inefficient and not taxpayer-friendly way of doing so. Yeah, I think that's right. The Semitech story is maybe more complicated than just abject failure, but it certainly 
wasn't revolutionary and the share of chip manufacturing, a global share that the U.S. had continued to go down. So I think you're right. We're now in a bidding war and this expenditure just is table stakes, I, I fear. That's right. And look, you know, is this good from our national security perspective to have manufacturing being the U.S.? I think so. Would it have been a national security defeat if the capability ended up in Germany instead? I'm not sure, right? There's clearly a vulnerability to having the bulk of the semiconductor manufacturing be in Taiwan, right? If, if there's a crisis in the Taiwan Straits and we lose access to the semiconductors, that is a serious problem for our national security. If the capability is in Germany, I'm not too worried. Yeah, so maybe. I think we're realizing one of the big risks isn't just a war, but uh, that the Taiwanese engineers who know a lot about manufacturing really small chip lines are culturally comfortable, if you give them enough money, moving to end this story. I thought the, the undercovered story of the week was the indication that China now has the capability and has had it for like a year to deliver seven nanometer chips. I don't think Intel even makes a seven nanometer. They certainly aren't selling it widely. No, and you're right that this didn't get a lot of news despite all of the fanfare about semiconductors. And the way we found this out is that a research company just bought the Chinese chips on the open market and reverse engineered them and figured out that they've got the process in place to produce these seven nanometer chips. And you're right that Intel can't do it yet, but I think they say they're going to be able to do it soon. Look, the Commerce Department's export controls were supposed to keep China from acquiring the technology needed to manufacturing any manufacture anything smaller than 14 nanometers. So this is yet another chapter of the imperfect nature of export controls. They can do a lot, but uh, there are a lot of ways around them. And it looks like here, perhaps the Chinese found a, a way to use older technology to still achieve the same results, even though we are trying to keep the newer manufacturing techniques out of their hands. Yeah. And as an indication, once you get into the market and you can drive the cost down, even people who care a lot about security sometimes find themselves saying, well, I just have to buy the Chinese product. And that seems to be the lesson from the FBI and DHS saying, oh, yeah, Chinese drones. Yeah, we use them. I wasn't sure where, but they have to have a waiver. But it looks like they've issued waivers for, for some of the DJI drones. That's right. Well, at least until Nick's company gets up and running and starts <laughs> producing at scale, uh, there just aren't a lot of options other than Chinese drones. And you have agencies that have these missions and they say, we, you know, we need the small drones to carry out our missions. I think they would be happy to buy products from other countries, but there aren't a lot of alternatives in the market, especially when the Chinese government is subsidizing these industries, is allowing them to deliver products at a below market price. So, Nick, you had an article on Lawfare talking about how you could build cheap drones and the Ukrainians could use them. I think you said you could build the drone for about 500 bucks and build a drone plus control system for under a thousand. How is that coming? I haven't heard much of any follow up yet. I'm hoping that somebody is paying attention because among other things, it's just cobbling together existing stuff. And in many ways, it's actually inspired by ISIS. These are the techniques ISIS was using until the US really dumped a huge number of jammers in the area. And I think Russia is reluctant to do that because either A, they're incompetent, or B, they are too also relying on a lot of small drones. And in particular, both sides are relying on a lot of DJI for surveillance. And that I find 
interesting because it turns out the DJIs actually broadcast where they took off from to anybody who's listening. And oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, which means that when you start to launch your drone, everybody else goes for a walk. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, do not stick around to where those quadcopters, where those DJIs launch from. The Ukrainians are also using a lot of big heavy lift quadcopters. That's how they're doing the bombing is these large industrial quadcopters that can carry a couple kilogram payload and those will carry like two or three bombs we're giving them switchblades which are cheap by u.s military standards of only six thousand dollars a pop and there's also this new phoenix ghost thing which we haven't seen but is probably a much more heavyweight loitering munition so tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for a bigger boom we don't know what those actually look like um, but right. there's possibility that if the u.s was interested we could provide a huge number of super cheap drones and that would be interesting yeah and i, you know, I would Nick, get ahead. yeah i was just gonna say in your article I love the idea of positioning this as a challenge. Yeah. Because I think the challenges really do incentivize folks to do stuff quick to win. And ho hopefully that takes hold because having come from the contractor environment, I do know that you're right on point when you say that it would be so much more expensive <laughs> if you put it out that way, rather than getting folks who are inclined and should be thinking and innovating to do something quickly. And the, I, hope that, I hope that takes on. So do I, because the thing is, is there is the resources in-house. You've got all the engineering yeah. graduates from the military academies, and then you've got specific labs like Travis has a a specific U.S. Air Force Innovation Lab. And also, if there was a contest, my money's on Travis. <laughs> Is AFWorks in there? Yes, they're part of AFWorks. Okay. Okay, so let's go on to, not very far, China, TikTok. There's a story that says they've increased their lobbying in the U.S. pretty substantially, Tina. Yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise. You know, if you've been following the tech sector for the last dozen years, it sort of starts with Brad Smith at Brookings and a proactive philosophy that you've got to get in there and not just react to what's going on, but create what's going to happen. So yeah, it is very interesting in the areas in which they're doing things. And it seems that the story coincides with the announcement that the chief security officer is going to go do advisory things, yeah. which is a little concerning in terms of what that portends in the future, who's going to, you know, gave an announcement through his LinkedIn. And there was also an announcement in their blog about all the things they've done, but I'm not sure in the future we're going to have a level of confidence that we're looking for. And I think that they're trying to get in there and be part of the DC crowd to be able to influence, but it may not work for them specifically because a lot of folks around the world, including our friends in Australia, have similar concerns that even if the data isn't stored in China, it's accessible. people in China still have access. Right. And that's a different, and you know, anybody who's done GDPR understands that concept. <laughs> it's about whether you have access, not necessarily where the data is physically located. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I, I thought it was the amount of money being spent, $2 million a quarter, that's like eight 
plus a year. That's what Google spends on lobbying. So this really buys a lot of access. One of the things I've always been interested in is how much of a bargain spending on lobbying can be. I, I think it's fair to assume that people who spend money on lobbying are expecting a return of somewhere between 10 and 100 times on their investment. But you do have to remember, Stuart, that the amount they're disclosing is probably one quarter or one fifth of what they're actually spending. So that's the amount that has <laughs> sure. to be disclosed yeah. as, Fair as, enough. Right, as, as a, as a registered lobbying expenses. I mean, if these companies are really doing influence campaigns in DC, and Google certainly is, TikTok would probably be committing a malpractice if it weren't, given how bad its reputation has gotten, and rightfully so. I mean, they really need yeah. to be spending probably five times as much to try to turn things around, and I don't think they'll be successful. Well, and also it's just an extension of their long-term strategy of getting in on the standards committees and getting in in all the sort of boring places to influence and make sure that anyone who's been following this for a period of time knows that they've, and it costs money to send people to work these standards and go to these meetings around the world, et cetera. So I think it makes sense that they would focus in DC. And also they haven't really overcome, and Michael, I guess you, you know more about this, the CFIUS challenge at this point, right? They still uh, are of concern. They are still in, in negotiation, I believe, trying to kind of persuade right. CFIUS that they can actually cut off access to the personal data. <clears throat> and that looks like it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, they've got a ways to go. On the other hand, I suspect that the administration, uh, especially this one, which I uh, really believes that the youth vote is the key to winning elections, is going to be reluctant to do something that's going to get them mocked by everybody under 30. And trying to ban TikTok could turn out to be, you know, I, I think a Republican administration that tried to do that would be abused heartily and then mocked into surrender. This administration might get away with it, but they'd be more afraid to try it. I do think it's hilarious, though, that some of the articles are talking about how Meta is changing to try and imitate TikTok yeah. because that's their biggest threat. Yes. Uh, so let's just keep beating on the China drum. Michael, the uh, U.S. is the, the, mainly the FBI, but others as well, has gotten really nervous about Huawei equipment out in the boondocks near missile silos. What's the story there? Yeah, this is not a good story. Look, it's no secret that Huawei has for a long time offered, as we're talking about, below, below market prices on its products. And that has garnered interest from especially these smaller rural telecommunications companies that are looking to save a few bucks. And China obviously does this quite strategically in areas of geopolitical significance to them. And it turns out that the areas right around the four bases where we have ICBMs are areas of great strategic interest to China. I mean, it's no secret where we keep the ICBMs. You don't hide the silos. We've had them in the same places for the last 60 years. And again, the rural telecommunications providers nearby are prime targets for China because they're the ones who are susceptible to the offer of you know saving a little bit in exchange for the Huawei gear. And look, there's plenty of public reporting that Huawei maintains backdoor access in its mobile networks. This is not a surprise. What is actually a little surprising, I think, is that the FCC has been so underfunded in its rip and replace program. 
this should really be a nonpartisan or really I should say bipartisan issue. And the amount is not huge. We're talking $3 billion. The FCC says that it needs, okay, well, only in DC would that be not, not a huge amount of money, but, but compared to the $30 billion that Intel is about to receive to build semiconductors, right? You know, having 3 billion in funding to get Huawei out of our telecommunications networks and get the threat away from one leg of our nuclear triad is not a lot of money. And I think it really is an area that you'll see bipartisan consensus on. Yeah, I, so this I- should have been done this should have been done already. It's unbelievable that it hasn't been done already. So it's, the money it's, should have been allocated. The, as I understand it, they're, they're required to rip and replace. And then the question is, how much of that cost is the U.S. government going to absorb? And not surprisingly, they've asked for more than was appropriated because you'd be a fool in Washington to, to ask for less or even the same amount. I'm skeptical, one, that those costs are as real as everybody says. And the company that was named in this story out in Colorado, rural Colorado, Viero, there's a scandal there, not just the company, but the Obama administration when they were doing the first stimulus program after the two. 2008 meltdown, they had a program to give money to rural broadband suppliers, phone companies, so that they could install a bunch of new equipment. And they were asked, well, can we install Chinese equipment? And the administration just said, oh, I guess so. I don't see how we can stop you. So this Viero company said, we're going to ask for $150 million from the government to upgrade our networks. And I guarantee you, we're going to discover that those guys took all that money and used it to buy the Huawei equipment that they're now asking us to pay to remove. So I, well, I, yeah, <laughs> look, I mean, the Obama administration did not take this issue seriously. And it wasn't until, I mean, that was not unlike the Bush administration before it, right? The change did not come until the Trump administration and the work done by the FCC, by Josh Steinman, yep. our senior director for cyber at the NSC, and several others to really start moving the consensus on this in DC. You know, people just treated this as, oh, it's no big deal for a long time. And the FBI started banging the drum on this, you're right, a few years ago. But the bureaucratic aircraft carrier took a while to turn around and really energize people and the need to take action. It wasn't really until, again, about halfway through the Trump administration that there was a wake-up call. So let's talk yeah, about... There, that's yep. not fair because there was a small group of people. I remember when I was deputy general counsel of a large IT services firm, and there was a separate group on supply chain cybersecurity that was really worried about any component pieces coming from China and under, you know, sort of the genesis of the S-bomb. So there were people who really believed that it. it's just they didn't have the power to make the change. So 2012 was an inflection point too when Mike Rogers yeah. at the House Intel Committee produced a report that said, this is a big problem. There wasn't a lot of evidence, but there was a lot of smoke. Uh, and I think anybody who was paying attention at that point would have said, yeah, maybe installing Chinese equipment is a bad idea. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to another legislation, another fat man trying to get through the door. This is federal data privacy legislation. And I still think chances are very low, but the House is definitely at work on a bipartisan bill. Nick, how are they doing? Uh, they seem to be doing remarkably well at actually doing their job and pissing off both sides. So <laughs> the EFF doesn't like it because they don't think it goes far enough, and it has preemption of state laws. 
The right doesn't like the private right of action, I assume. Right. The left doesn't like that there's loopholes in the private right of action and it doesn't attack mandatory arbitration. Overall, at least they're working on the subject seriously, because this is something that we have been doing atrocious at as a country because we've been ignoring the externalities of these privacy violations. Yeah, I think that's probably right. This is a big deal for the FTC. It really cements them as the privacy regulator for the federal government and that kicks the FCC to the curb. I took advantage of the fact that it had actually passed to take a look at it. And one of the things I am particularly easy about is a discrimination provision that basically imposes political correctness on any artificial intelligence or algorithmic modification or manipulation of data that includes somewhere some private data. So it's basically all data is going to be subject to this. And it essentially says, if you do not achieve uh, politically correct quotas, with your algorithm, then your algorithm is going to become actionable. You're going to be sued over it. This is going to be working a staggering effect on the imposition of quotas in a whole bunch of areas we've never seen them before. Racial quotas, gender quotas, pretty much every possible protected class is going to get to say, I don't like your algorithm because I didn't get enough of the good stuff. And I think it's it's really dangerous bill that's being put through under cover of solving the privacy problem. On the other hand, part of the problem is machine learning is a great way to teach a computer to be a racist a-hole. And there's a lot of people who seem to like it that way. I don't know. I think the idea that there are racist a-holes out there looking for a chance to impose their views is far inferior to the view there are a bunch of well-meaning liberals who think that affirmative action quotas are necessary, if not attractive, and that they need to be imposed on everybody else. So I'm just not convinced that there are that many people shaping the machines that are doing the learning in ways that you don't like. The fact is, life is shaping those outcomes, and we just don't like the way life has turned out for a lot of people. Yeah, but algorithmic transparency has been an issue for a long time, and certainly for global companies who need to comply with other requirements, especially under GDPR and other efforts, especially in the EU, to make sure that there's some level of accountability. Now, whether it goes too far and whether it's not transparent enough to us that it's meant to ensure the ability to comply with laws. And the EEOC has been doing a great job. One of the commissioners has been out there for the last couple of years talking about doing a better job of making sure that we understand what's happening with that personal data and how the machines are using it and what the underlying data sets so, um, are. I, I completely disagree. The EEOC has been talking about this, and they've basically been taking their favorite tool for imposing quotas, which is disparate impact, in which you say, does this thing you're doing have a differential impact on women or men or uh, blacks or Hispanics? And if it does, it's bad. And if you're running a corporation, you might say, well, at least I can't be sued. So if I just adopt quotas, I won't be sued. And that is a common strategy for corporate clients. But it's not good for the country to, to impose all of these things, all of this bis disparate impact, which used to be about you know who gets jobs mainly, and now is going to be about everything, who gets health care, who gets new opportunities. And so we're suddenly going to discover that 
in the background, all of the opportunities that come to us in life have been pre-quotaized. That's my guess. And until we have that debate, it's hard to say that we ought to adopt this kind of thing, which quite explicitly says we're going to do a disparate impact analysis every time you conduct an algorithmic modification of the data that you collect. It bothers me a lot, and it certainly hasn't been part of the debate. Okay, Tina, uh, let's talk Russians. Have they finally started to figure out how to do cyber war after being apparently going from eight feet tall to four feet tall? Are they back to six and a half? Or is this just a one-off? Well, I don't know if it's a one-off, but in this particular instance, them trying to push out some fake information about the health of Zelensky, they didn't do a very good job of it. <laughs> it was pretty apparent almost immediately that it wasn't, they didn't even use the, the right language and people could see immediately what it was. So, so it was I mean, what was interesting then, and to the extent that it showed their capability, it was the fact that they got into the radio broadcast at all. Oh, I see what you mean. I was looking at the information warfare piece of it. Ah, oh, right. yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's, that's they, they, they say they should be judged by their ability to shape people's views, not just by their ability to do hacking. And what you're saying right. is, well, if so, you've got a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, I'll defer to my technology colleagues who know better their specific hacking capabilities. But again, it doesn't matter if you hack into something and then you can't affect, you can't get the outcome you want. <laughs> and in this particular instance, you know, it's just like the spam we get where the language is wrong. And in this instance, you know, they use poor Ukrainian with stylistic errors and everybody, uh, come on, you know, people knew immediately because they've been expecting it too. It's not, yeah. it's not like the folks hadn't had the context for a long time, even, you know, I guess going back at least 2014 for things that have been happening. So I think we should not lower our guard to assume that they're going to fail everywhere, even though they haven't done that well since the actual invasion. But it is a little embarrassing when we thought they were so great at so many things. Yeah. And it turns out not so much. So the other thing that I was interested, in, Nick, is that the most popular radio station in Ukraine is called Radio Bayraktar, which is, <laughs> which is the, the Turkish drone. It, it suggests there's been a big change in market share in the last year. <laughs> You've heard the Bayraktar song, right? Yeah, well, yes. It, it is pretty funny. I mean, yes. Although right okay. now, the big one is the HIMARS Munition Depot tour. It's not going well for the Russians on that one. Yeah. Well, we'll see. And I guess I'm starting to see suggestions that they actually don't have as much ammunition as they had. So maybe it is having an impact on the front line. Okay. YouTube is taking out misinformation about abortion in response to Dobbs. Tina, what are they doing? Well, I think it's Google writ large trying to do a better job of enforcing maybe or maintaining what they say they do from a policy perspective. I mean, I think there's so many things that could have been done over the years, and now it's becoming a little bit more dire. But Google specifically is committing, I don't know exactly how it's going to do it and how it's going to demonstrate removing the location data for a select category of entities that folks are visiting. Although I still think that there's so much data that people can put together from disparate places that you could still figure things out. But it's a start. But that and, means that the subpoenas I, won't come to Google. Yeah. 
some private sector entity that can assimilate all of this stuff. And I think back to the YouTube piece, because I'm just continuously astounded at how much that platform is used by everybody around the world. I think being able to monitor the dangerous misinformation that could lead to injury and death for young women in particular who don't know how to go to other sources or will believe things uh, about procedures that they think are safe and are not. So I do think it's a health issue and a health safety issue. And I'm glad that they're being a little bit more vigilant. We'll we'll see. We'll see. It's just... So I, it's just I, I, coming out. I, the story spent an enormous amount of time on the idea that there's misinformation about herbal uh, abortion remedies and how utterly ineffective most of that stuff is. And it's kind of hard to object to trying to take that down because it's profit-motivated speech that will leave people pregnant when they don't want to be. The other thing I was more interested in because I thought it was much more likely to produce political correctness was information related to the safety of abortion, such as the false claim that abortions have a high risk of causing infertility, which sounds like an opportunity to shut down these pregnancy centers that are trying to persuade people not to get an abortion, but to carry the baby to term. So I actually went to Google to say, what do people say? What are the risks of abortion? And I didn't find anything other than kind of CDC type sources there. When I used a different search engine, I found some of the pregnancy centers. I didn't find data that looked wrong. Abortion isn't a particularly risky procedure, except obviously for the fetus, but there are risks. They're just on the order of one in a thousand or higher. Uh, but what was interesting is that Google wouldn't let that information be delivered by somebody who was ideologically unsound. It just took those results out of the search results, at least compared to the other search engine I use, which I think was Neva. So Google is already doing a lot of information suppression before it starts going after what it calls new forms of misinformation. You kind of have to ask, is this a question I want to ask Google? And if what you're trying to find is people who are making claims about abortion risk from a different ideological position, you're just not going to find them on Google. You'll have to go someplace else. And remember, this comes on the heels of a few months ago, YouTube announced that it was going to take down content that it deemed to be misinformation about climate change, which came after they said that claims about COVID-19 and vaccines were misinformation, right? I mean, it's just the the scope of what they deemed misinformation keeps expanding and keeps expanding in a way that suggests that there's a political agenda behind it, right? So it certainly uh, could be, yeah. To your your point, Stuart, yeah, like certainly unobjectionable to take down scammers offering herbal remedies that don't deliver, right? But you'd expect them to take the scammers down across the board, not just on abortion claims, right? But if an herbal remedy is a scam and YouTube has determined somehow that there's some complaints of the FTC, the scam operation, then it should be done irrespective of the political agenda. Tina? Yeah, the only thing, and I recently participated in a Georgetown Law event that focused on these kinds of issues, and there were a lot of instances where someone put into a search engine, I'm looking for an abortion, I need an abortion, and the hits were these entities that held themselves out to be abortion clinics, and they turned out that they weren't. They were places where you were encouraged to carry a term and to put up for adoption and things like that. And I think that 
may be lumped under, to me, it's a bait and switch scam. But I think part of that informed that conversation around, well, we got to fix those things, those things that were not being represented. I mean, maybe they call that misinformation. But I do understand why folks would, because, I mean, Google's been accused, they thought the Obama administration was the Google administration. There have been companies that have been associated, especially in the tech sector with administrations, to think that it's about that. I just, it looks to some people, and certainly some young people, like we're at the beginning of Gilead, and I think we just want to make it so that at least when people are in a situation where they need to find out how to get this women's health care, that they can do that with the least amount of friction and get to something that's real. Yeah. It's a, it, well, just this morning, the Biden administration announced that the deputy national cyber director is going to be a Google executive. So uh, it's the second Google administration, perhaps, right? Up to this issue of are people really going to trust what they're seeing from Google when there, again, seems to be indications of a political agenda. Okay, Nick, the Justice Department has started successfully seizing cryptocurrency and ransomware attacks. Not always, not all of it, but I think what's impressive is that they can do it at all, right? Like Samuel Johnson said about a dog walking on its hind legs. It's not that it's done well, it's that it's done at all. That's <laughs> impressive. How are they doing this? Do you know? They're probably mostly using chain tracing tools and going to the exchanges that it lands at for ransomware purveyors who aren't doing a very good job of bothering to hide. Okay. And so I, it, it depends on the exchange. Some exchanges are going to say, well, this is part of our business model that we won't turn you in, but others are eager to cooperate. Is that where we stand? I would say it's more the exchange is going to be eager to cooperate if it's still on the exchange rather than moved off, because okay. they're afraid of the treasury if they get busted for being like North Korea sanctions busting, because like there's at least one Russian exchange which is now cut off from the financial system and whose primary people basically can only vacation in Sochi now. All right. So this is Darwinian principles as applied to ransomware guys. If they're not very good at covering their tracks, they're going to lose some of the money. Yes. Yeah. And I just want to point out Andy Greenberg's April article in Wired inside the Bitcoin bus that took down the web's biggest child abuse site. This notion that everyone thinks that using cryptocurrency is a lock on anonymity and it's not. So good on the folks that yeah, are, guys, I, getting, I, they, you know, DOJ and others. The, the guys they busted were real babes in the woods. They just thought, oh, if it's Bitcoin, nobody can find me. And then they transferred the Bitcoin to their bank account. And what do you know? <laughs> However, also, this was back in 2015 when only a few people publicly understood just how traceable it was. Right. Right. Oh, I see. So Darwin had not yet fully had his effect. Is it Darwin or the Fafo Gator on his airboat of justice? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, before we go to quick hits, I thought the best long article, Nick, of the week was Krebs taking a dive into residential proxy services and especially 911, which is basically, we'll give you anonymity as long as you install malware that allows us to do crypto mining and the DDoSing from your computer. It, that does sound like it's pretty much the bargain that they're offering. Yep. And basically, when bad guys get on Krebs's radar, 
A, you get good stories, and B, bad things are going to happen to those folks going forward. Yeah, because he really does dox them. <laughs> Very effectively, yeah. So yes, worth a read. All right, quick hits. So let's get through these pretty quickly. These are mostly updates. You remember that a Twitter worker from Saudi was arrested for working for the Saudi Arabian government, Ahmad Abuamo. He is going to trial, right, Tina? Yeah, and I think, you know, and there's a bunch of Farah cases in a lot of different contexts. But, you know, it's two parts to this story, sort of the insider threat <laughs> and the security policies and enforcement of Twitter. And I think they talk a little bit about how it's improved since when he was there. And I yeah. guess, obviously, security is a journey. But yeah, the the process of going out there and DOJ's got a list on its websites of all the Farah cases, and they're moving forward with them. I think they're doing a lot more these days. Days. I don't know if that's the angle that you thought was interesting in yeah, terms of this particular. No, I, it will be interesting to see how the trial goes and what issues arise. I guess the fact that we've only seen this one case is pretty disturbing because, you know, if you ranked the human services around the world, Saudi would not make the top 25. And the other 24. But they're the ones who get caught. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. that means that there are at least 24 other services that care about Twitter and social media who haven't been caught. Yeah, or maybe not caught, but <laughs> in collaboration. Who knows? But yeah, I understand your point. Uh, of course, it's all about access to the kind of data sets that are going to make a difference in terms of understanding people and Twitter but, you know, it's weird because Twitter doesn't, and I'm on it, I've got 130,000 tweets so there, but the majority of the population isn't. I think the other services are very interested in, in all the information about individuals that you cobble together from lots of different places, social media, and other places where they're hacking, right, yeah. to create profiles and stuff. But yeah, no, fair enough that I'm not sure whether there's political motivation to focus on this particular one. I don't know. Okay, moving along, I'll do this one. There is an article, a pretty good article and a long paper that I frankly did not get all the way through by two GCHQ employees, Ian Levy and Chris Benson. They are famous for having said, hey, you know, this end-to-end -end encryption problem, it's not unsolvable at all, and proposing that there just be a host participant who can be added in response to a court order to an end-to-end -end encrypted conversation. They've come back to look at other ways of addressing the child sexual abuse material problem, and particularly to look at Apple's now abandoned proposal to screen for that material on people's handsets. It's a much more complex article. I came away thinking, oh yeah, you can do something, but once you've got end-to-end -end encryption, a lot of the child sex abuse material is just going to be insulated. But if you care about this stuff, these are the only guys who are suggesting that maybe this problem should be solved and can be solved or at least ameliorated. So definitely worth reading. Second, the Denmark data protection folks have ruled that none of Denmark's schools, they picked one, but this will apply to all of them, can use Chromebooks, Chrome Workspace, all of the services that Google has made available more or less for free to education institutions it includes Gmail and G Suite and Docs, all of that stuff 
now banned because of GDPR. So GDPR is by no means cost-free. It's going to be a real problem for Denmark to replace all that, and it probably won't be as good and likely won't be as secure, but their data at least won't go to the United States. So that is where Denmark is coming out. Not surprised. I think that's what the uh, EU Court of Justice intended. So we're starting to see shoe after shoe fall. And then finally... You can add the Netherlands to that too, Stuart. Yep. Yeah, no, they're... <laughs> the they're, they're Ministry of Education did the same thing for Chrome. Yep. They're going to all do it because that's what the law of the European Union uh, calls for. Last, Nick, here's your chance. Free shot to spike the ball. Three, three hour arrows founders from an undisclosed location whining about their bad press. Yeah, whining about their bad press while being on the run in an undisclosed location. You gotta love crypto bros who, when literally fleeing justice and fleeing a inevitable arrest warrant, take the time to go, we were just upset by market conditions, not that we had levered up billions of dollars into obvious Ponzi schemes. To be fair, they say they're subject to death threats, and that's why they're in hiding. That's kind of everybody who becomes public in the 2020s is going to say, oh, poor me, I get death threats, because we all get death threats. Actually, it's been a while since I got one, but I'm sure I've gotten more than my share. And uh, these guys are hiding out on their way to Dubai, I guess. Uh, That's uh, the rumor. Truth be told, I'm not sure if they'll be safe there, because the thing <laughs> is, local authorities might go after them. They've yes, managed I to basically, they cratered billions. They did. But I'm struck by the fact that it's now these dominoes fell bang, 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 you know, Tether and then Celsius and then Three Arrows. And it was because of cascading of calls on people's collateral. It's been two or three weeks now and we haven't seen another. Do you think we're done with all of the cascading collateral calls and bankruptcies? No, because there's a lot of people who lent against Bitcoin to the miners, and those need to get paid out in real money. Okay. All right. Oh, and if you hadn't noticed, Pony Stark sold three quarters of Tesla's share of Bitcoins. Well, so maybe yeah. he probably got out without completely losing his shirt. And as you point out, that's a disturbing image right there. <laughs> okay. Nick, Tina, Michael, thank you for joining us. And I want to give special thanks in closing to Jacob Nelson, who came back for a second tour as our sound editor and persuaded us that he could do it from Syria, Egypt, Italy, anywhere. And that's why Mark Chernozik, who's taking over from him at the end of this show, is going to be doing it from California. So, Jacob, many thanks for your participation and for everything you taught us editing our sound and how much better better you made us sound than we actually are. If you're listening to this and you want to send us feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Rate the show, leave a review if you really want to get our attention, and we might even read it on the air. This has been episode 418 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm -hmm.